How did, have y'all seen this story about? This is not on the list. Um, about this this three plane midair that was supposedly averted just off of, just south of National yeah, Airport. I did see that. I did, did see, see that. This? And and do I'm they, tr- do they really think that yeah. three airplanes are going to collide? <laughs> I don't know what they thought. I was reading this I mean, story trying to picture what the heck happened. Uh, on on one level, it was you know it was just it, well. Here's the way I pictured it. Your basic goof up, all right? They apparently were turning the airport around for weather reasons. Right. And so, and the word didn't get out to everybody, so they had an airplane sort of on final-ish. Right. right. At the same time that they were departing an airplane on the same runway in the opposite direction. Apparently so, they shot off two. Um, these were approaches. They were, they were switching from a north operation to a south operation. Yeah. And they, there was a jet on final for 3-6 or 1, whatever it is now. Um, and then they had, they shot off two departures on one eight. Yeah. And so <laughs> I don't know where, where they think the three airplanes were going to collide because two, at least the second two are probably far enough apart. Right. Yeah. They, the third, the third one I figure is going to get off scot-free. Yeah. All right. You know, because <laughs> the first one is running interference. <laughs> He's going to clear the skies for the other one. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Usually if they're going in the same direction on the same flight path, you have a reduced potential, not no potential, yeah. but a reduced potential. Yeah. And, and, and while I will acknowledge that, that this is a bad procedure to have done it this way under any circumstances, all right, the fact of the matter is, unless the arriving airplane was really on short final, all right, uh, the, the departing airplanes are going to be above him pretty quick. And no, this, this was all over the, the Memorial Bridge south of there. I'm yeah. Sure. So what airport was this at? This was National. At, Nash, at National in Washington. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's the three airplane. I mean, I just, the, find, I just find the whole thing. Three airplanes are going to collide. When was the last time three airplanes collided? World War II, maybe? Yeah, right. So <laughs> anyways, yeah, three airplanes in midair, you know, trice the fun, I guess, right? Yeah, that was weird. That's it. That's... That is an odd one. Have have you learned anything more about it than what we just kind of no, ma- made up no, as we're going along here? Uh, FAA is, has it under investigation. I wouldn't be surprised if NTSB gets involved at some point. Oh, I would think. And and but, you got to figure that they're counting both of the departing airplanes. This is my guess. A holiday in, in express kind of thing, um, based on the idea that they probably launched the second aircraft before they realized their mistake exactly so there were so there were three airplanes sort of quote-unquote involved in this whole thing all right but at best two of them came close to each other and yeah yeah, at worst i should you should say uh, at worst yeah of course yeah at worst two of them came close together but it it sounds like the inbound um i don't know where this coverage was a poster or a uh, ap but uh they basically the the, in, the inbound the one on final approach they basically turned him 180 degrees immediately, and um, and then were vectoring him back in and he was on the verge of going min fuel. Uh, yeah, I, I saw that he, one too. But. Yeah, I, I can see that you know vec- being vectored around at low level and and all that kind of thing. He's he's using up gas at a, a very good rate. But that's going to become the next part of this controversy because I can't imagine that he was genuinely minimum fuel. He was just paperwork minimum fuel would be my he, guess. Probably so. You know, probably. he he was not reaching the point where he was going to run out of gas. He was reaching the point where he was going to start to fill out forms when he landed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. And 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 I don't blame him for not wanting to get there. I don't blame you. There, he, you know? he, he's I mean, spot on. I would do it too. Yeah. Um, so uh well. 
Yeah. No one's going to do it for him. Yeah, exactly. So, anyways, but yeah, that was a weird story. That was a weird story. I uh, that wasn't the weird story I was going to begin with, but that's a that is a weird story. We'll have to learn more why, about why, that. Why bother? Why why bother with a list? Yeah, I know. We just link it up as we go along. It's worked for us for six years. You know, why stop now? Why stop now? I do want to drop one other odd story in here before we before we really get started, and that is a couple, a bunch of episodes. Lord knows how many episodes ago, because Oshkosh just seems like it lasted two years this time. Um, but whenever it was, we were last doing regular episodes. Somewhere back in there, we talked about the idea that Russians were going to be bringing fighter planes to Red Flag, the Red Flag. Uh, 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 exercises in uh, in Nevada this year, all right, and we had a good old time talking about the the, the ramifications of this and the whatever of this. And uh, a couple days later, I discovered mm-hmm. turns out that that whole story about the Russians bringing fighter jets to Red Flag was all a hoax. There never was a story that we were, you know, it was never a reality in the first place. Uh, in so fact, they won't see the big board. Yeah, so it's all safe. They're not going to see the big board. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, um, there were there was at one point plans to have just Russian observers at Red Flag. And apparently that fell apart as well for, quote unquote, uh, what was the word they used? Reciprocity issues. Um, so... Uh, so even now, so so you know all our concerns about the Russians, you know, flying against the American jets, and you know whether we were going to have a big, uh, you know, you know West Side Story thing going on. Um, <laughs> West Side Story. Yeah, you know, it's the sharks and the jets. You tell me which one's the sharks. I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I was going to say this would be more like the jets and the jets, but I have I have a big playlist on my iPod that's just I, I, the I show love, tune. Uh, well, yeah, show tunes. That's a whole other story. But anyways, I do in fact <laughs> think that. West Side Story is musically one of the great story wise all around one of the greatest uh, you know uh, productions ever and so I've got a playlist on my iPod that has all sorts of versions of all sorts of songs from from West Side Story and it's still like resonating in my head from uh, from the drive not home that, not that there's any not that there's anything wrong with that. Not nothing wrong with it at all. So, anyways, well, anyways, on that note, let me see now. <laughs> I completely forget how we do this thing. Let's see now. I think at this point I say something like, "Welcome, folks, to episode 301 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast." Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise That's yeah right. this That's is right. this is the best seat in the house we got sky riders now we got sky riders, got sky riders now. Now. does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're on site clear west turkey vegetable ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta Recording this episode on uh, Thursday, August 2, 2012. And joining me here in the virtual hangar, my two good friends, uh, uh, probably both also recovering from our week in, in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, first of all, Jeb Burnside's out there talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How are you doing, Jeb? I'm doing well. I'm mostly recovered. Uh, I have stuff strewn all out throughout the house. Um, laundry in various stages of completion. Um, I think I'm finally close to being caught up on sleep. Um, see, I don't even feel near being caught up on sleep. I well, see, I had the extra, you know, the bonus question of uh, not sleeping for two days driving home. So that was the capper. It was it was a great week. I had a lot of fun, but boy, I'm telling you, it's just like twelve oh, yeah. days of of you know short nights of sleep and long days wandering around in the sun, in the sun, and uh, so 
Anyways, David, how are you doing? You recovering? Oh, I'm sorry. So let me just <laughs> see. I've completely forgotten how to do this. And also here in the virtual hangar, my other good friend Dave Higdon's out there joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you? He is. Yeah. Are you sure? I think so. Hang, hang, hang on. Let me look. Uh, please. Oh. There he, Damn, there he is. There he is. There he is. Yeah, back again. Uh, Jiggity jig. What can I say? 100 degrees uh, again? And I think I'll be back caught up with my brain somewhere around the 4th or 5th of August. But check with me then. Yeah, I know. I know. Maybe me too. I need about a week. I need at least a few more days. Uh, it looks like it continues to be wicked hot in, in Wichita, David. Is it? Is it over 100 again today? Yeah. Man. Yeah, and uh, we had uh, those of you that remember the little ditty, 30 days has September, blah, blah, blah. July has 31. 21 of those were 100 or higher. Wow. Most of them above 100. That's just so, not even That's not even funny anymore. I mean, that's just not even a novelty. That's that's wrong. That's dangerous. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, the, the, the first couple of folks I bumped into, my, my neighborhood's uh, friends that I bumped into after getting back here. Uh, or, uh, or they're over it. I mean, they're seriously over it. They're, they're, they're looking for the snow making machine. They're hoping for, you know, something like five feet of snow this winter just to offset it. Uh, I said, I, I, I'll, I'll go with you, but I'll go out and buy snowshoes right now, but it ain't going to happen. I, you know, who knows? It ain't happen. I was just thinking you won't get as much snow this year as you normally do. Well, I don't, you know, who? I, that, that's been the case the last two years. You know, I don't know. I mean, your chances are you're right, but I just don't think we know anymore. You know, I, yeah. I was looking. I was thinking about this. I was watching the Weather Channel for a few minutes. Um, you know, I don't know in the last couple of days, and and they're showing you know maps of you know of high temperatures all over the country and how nasty it is. And I got to thinking. I, I wonder what the climate of of North America is now. You know, because we kind of grew up with a notion of, you know, par some parts of the country are hot and humid and other dry and other, you know, stay nice all year round and others have a lot of snow. And you just can't count on that anymore. I wonder what the climate in the various regions is like now. What will it settle into as we get this new thing? Yeah, because it's craziness, you know. Well, and if you, if you look at it, uh, if you look at one of the many maps available online and, and look at drought conditions... There's a whole lot of the country way below average uh, moisture, above average dry. Yeah, well, there's this piece in the paper today about or a headline I saw that said that like half of the counties in the United States are under emergency drought conditions right now. Yeah, half yeah, of yeah. the counties, you know. Yeah. So, anyways. Um, you, you, you get into the, you know, is this global warming? Is this, you know, uh, man-made? Or you get into, you know, okay, fine. Um, that's not really the question. I think the question is, shouldn't, regardless of whether it's, you know, man-made, shouldn't we be doing what we can to minimize it in the first place? You know, that's, that, that's a really, that's a really smart question. You'd never regardless, get, you, yeah. you'd never get anywhere in politics in this state asking <laughs> smart questions. I understand. I understand. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, I wonder if. Before we go much further, though, yeah, go ahead. Um, I just checked my inbox, yeah. and there's a brand new release from uh, the FAA on this uh, Washington National thing. Oh, really? What's it say? Uh, like six or eight graphs here. You want me to read them? Yeah. Breaking news. I'll make the teletype noise here while you're talking in the background, or I'll be in the background. This was after just after 2 p.m. on Tuesday, the 31st. 
at, quote, at no point were the three aircraft on a head-to-head course. They were not on a collision course, said Acting Administrator Huerta. The two departing aircraft came within these margins in relation to a plane that was landing, but at no point were any of the planes headed directly for one another. Uh, DCA had been landing and departing uh, uh, aircraft on runway one from the south to the north. Due to the bad weather developing the track, TRACON was reversing operations at the airport to land and depart aircraft from the, from the north to the south on runway 19. During the switchover of operations, there was a miscommunication between the TRACON and two uh, coordinators at the DCA tower. Miscommunication should not have happened. FAA safety officials are investigating why the miscommunication occurred and will take action as appropriate. Miscommunication led to a loss of the required separation between two regional jets, Chautauqua Airlines 3071 and Republic Airlines 3467, departing from runway 1 in a regional jet, Republic Airlines 3329, inbound from runway 19. Oh, I get it. It was the other way around. Uh, an air traffic controller at DCA immediately realized that a loss of separation was occurring and acted quickly to correct the situation. Uh, loss of separation should not have occurred. However, at no point were the three aircraft on a head-to-head course. I, I didn't catch what part of it that you that was suddenly a revelation well, to you I there. Thought this, I thought this was occurring south of the airport. Instead, it was occurring north of the airport. Oh, okay. Um, the two regional jets were departing from runway one, and, and the other, the third regional jet was inbound for one nine. Is so one happened, nine the one that has that funky river arrival? It is. It is. And he may or may not have been using that approach. Probably was. I, I, yeah, because weather, you don't come... The weather was decent. You don't come straight into that that you one nine come, runway. You don't come straight into that airport to that runway because of the White House. See, well, I don't think you come straight into National for anything. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I, well, you do for runway one. But all the more to my point that that you know the departing aircraft were above the arriving aircraft pretty quickly, and yeah. uh, so. Well, the, the last graph here says so the departing aircraft were cleared. Da da da. While uh, Republic Airlines three three two nine was inbound. Uh, at the closest proximity, Chautauqua 3071 and Republic Airlines 3329 were separated by 0.82 nautical miles laterally and 800 feet vertically as Chautauqua Airlines 3071 continued its climb. The closest proximity of the two Republic Airlines aircraft was 2.07 nautical miles and 800 feet vertical. Both aircraft were moving away from each other. And in a terminal area, that's, you know, I'll take that in any day of the week. Yeah. Yeah, so what's I, the, I don't know. You know, they had a loss of separation. They miscommunicated. It was north of the airport, not south. Yeah, I know that the FAA has has minimum separation standards, and and when you get you know within those stand, you know, less than those standards, you know, you know, alarms go off and people get in trouble, as we discovered today. Do they have a standard for what is defined as a quote unquote near miss, um, or is that just whatever the media wants to call it? Yeah, it's kind of. Uh, yeah, I don't think that term has a, a an official definition in the FAA. I think that's a media term. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a uh, a violation of separation standards, or you have a mid air collision. Right. So once you've got a violation of separation standards, it's that's as good. That's you know, from a definition standpoint, that's as bad as it gets. And think about this. There's one. I'm looking at some of the headlines here. It said, uh, "National Airport when they came within 12 seconds of a mid-air collision." Uh, 12 seconds is not a lot of time when you have a closing speed of many, many hundreds of knots. But if you calculate the distance of how far apart they were at those speeds, they're a long way apart. Still. Right. 
Right. But they're inside the separation standard. Yeah. Jeb, you still there? Yeah. Okay. Right. You just drop yeah, out. I'm, 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 there's, this new, <clears throat> there's this new tool called the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> and I was looking up to see what the, the criteria were at the FAA's NMAX site. But um, every, you, you Google mid-air collision, near mid-air collision, and it, it just pops up everything about this DCA. Yeah. Okay. So... I don't know. It, it, it Maybe something new will come out of this, but it sounds like it's kind of a non-story. This is like a, a goof-up that got corrected and now is going to get investigated, and you know, maybe some new rules will go into effect. But If it had happened going into Salina, Kansas, uh, probably would have gotten no ink. Yeah. Well, I would speculate that it's happened a great deal going into Salina, Kansas, or any other non-towered airport. Where you've got, you know... Oh, Salina uh, is towered. Well, perhaps even other towered airports, too. Where yeah. you've got um, uh, light wind conditions, for example. Uh, it's not the least bit uncommon, and it's not the least bit unsafe for, the you know, two, two flights to use uh, different runways, you know, the opposite direction runways. Yeah, yep. Well, if memory serves me... talking to each other and see everybody. If memory serves me, a controller can get gagged for... Uh, uh, not adhering to separation standards if they clear an airplane to take off before the uh, uh, landed airplane cancels IFR on the frequency. So there's there's some, you know, there, there's a difference between what's really spooky and what's a bureaucratic violation. Right. And the FAA takes them both about as seriously. Yeah, which I guess is as they should. Anyways, okay, Um Here's a story that is uh, is actually very cool, and uh, I heard about it back before uh, Oshkosh, and I've been saving it here. Um, this story originally goes back to something that we talked about quite some time ago. I don't know exactly when, but probably a year ago or so. Uh, we talked about a uh, an aviation blogger who goes by the name of Mr. Shu, and Mr. Shu had been a student pilot and was blogging about it and was quite enthusiastic and quite the excellent cheerleader for general aviation, and uh, was just enjoying the process and 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 enjoying the process so much that he bought an airplane for himself while he was still a student pilot and uh and smart man yes um and then bad luck hit and in his very i think almost first flight maybe very first flight in his new airplane this is like a year ago now um in his very first flight uh he, with his instructor obviously because he was still a student uh in his brand new airplane they suffered an engine failure or a partial engine failure and went down straight ahead off of the runway and uh, they were okay but the airplane was totaled and and he blogged some more about the trauma of this and the the reality of it and it was a very interesting story and and on many levels a heartbreaking story even though nobody was hurt and uh and that's sort of the last we heard of it um until recently, uh, and someone called my attention to his blog recently, where the headline now is, this is from an entry from 8th of July, the headline is, I bought another airplane. And the first paragraph in his blog post here is, here is yes, I'm aware that the last time didn't end so well, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> Ever since I returned to a regular flying schedule at West Valley Flying Club in January, I realized that my passion for flying and for airplane ownership hasn't waned. If anything, it has intensified. And he tells us the story about how he went out shopping again and found yet another airplane uh, and has purchased it. And since then, he has uh, uh, passed his check ride and become a private pilot. And uh, and uh, he originally went out to try and buy a replacement to the uh, Beach Mus- Musketeer that he bought previously and unfortunately crashed with him on board um and uh, and ended up and i think this is kind of like a apples and oranges almost thing but instead of getting a beach musketeer he ended up getting a uh a a, a, a v-tail bonanza um and a beautiful picture mm-hmm. of his airplane here in the blog post and uh, him talking about the the buying process and uh you know the checkout process and uh, you know and just kind of you know letting us know that he's still here and he still loves aviation in spite of the bad circumstances way back when and i just think this is a i mean this was a cool story to begin with with that heartbreaking sort of quote unquote end um but uh you know it didn't end there and he continued his training apparently he stopped for a little while un- unsurprisingly but then he picked it up, continued, finished, and now he has himself a uh, uh, a really pretty bonanza and uh, a sixty-seven V thirty-five, no slouch mm-hmm. as a traveling machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, ba- it's basically the same airplane I have, except uh, there's a certain bulkhead aft of which uh, it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So congratulations to Mr. Shu. Yeah, big time for uh, for sticking with it and for finding himself a new airplane and uh, just you know excellent good stuff. Picture, yeah, absolutely. Picture of him here. I think I believe that's him uh, down lower here with a big smile on his face and uh, uh, a couple of pictures of him with his airplane and telling the whole well, he's, story. He's the younger of the two guys in some of the early shots with the V tail. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Yep. So that's great. That's just. Before we go any much further, anyway, um, the uh, Airman's Information Manual, paragraph 763b, quote, a near mid air collision is defined as an incident associated with the operation of an aircraft in which a possibility of collision occurs as a result of proximity of less than 500 feet to another aircraft or a report is received from a pilot or a flight crew member stating that a collision hazard existed between two or more aircraft, unquote. That's a near-mid-air collision. Yeah. That's pretty interesting, yeah. Is there one there for near-miss? Well, isn't that the same thing? Isn't that the same thing? Well, I don't know. I don't want to do this. You know, I don't want to play the semantic game, but a (laughs) near-miss and a near-mid-air imply the same thing. But I think, a near and a miss are kind of an oxymoron, which is well, why I've always kind of had fun with the idea that George Carlin you either missed or you hit. Yeah. yeah. George Carlin had a real good riff on this back in the day, and it was something to the effect that isn't a near miss really just a near hit also? <laughs> yeah. There you go. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, and, that's one reason I think the aim is, is using the phrase near mid-air collision. Yeah. Well, near mid-air collision is, yeah, that's a formal, you just read the definition. Never been any question in my mind about that. That's defined, laid out. Near miss is kind of like, well, okay, so is it better to have a big miss? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, all we want to do is miss. Near, far, it doesn't really make any difference. We just want to make sure we miss, which is why a near miss it, it kind of gives me chuckles every time. And it's 
easier for the media to use because it takes up less space and it will fit in a headline much more easily than near mid-air collision. Right. And there's a lot to that being the actual reason for the for their use. Yep. So what's this story, Jeb? You posted it. I had seen it separately um, about the uh, open bar situation. Oh, yeah. um, so that's so, a different kind of open bar, right? Yeah, it is. You can't get drunk on this open. Uh, bar. That's what they're calling an open bar. I'm not sure. So bar B A R R acronym uh, stands for block aircraft registration request, and. Uh, what exactly? This has to do with things like FlightAware, where, you know, um, ideally, or, or, or I don't know what the right word is, but, but under, under basic circumstances, you can get information about flights that are in the air that are flying under a flight plan or flight following. And, uh, but then if, if the pilot chooses, they can have their information blocked. And I guess that's what a BARR is—a block aircraft registration request. Exactly. And there was, and there was, a, there was some controversy. I don't know what a year ago. Yeah, I guess about a year ago, when uh, well, they, it wasn't, con- wasn't controversy. It wasn't controversy. DOT wanted to end the program. Yeah, which they wanted to end the blocking program. Right, right, right. They wanted to make it so that you could not conceal your information uh, in the system. Um, and and then that went away, so that now you couldn't conceal your information. And then it came back. I've lost track of how all the comings and goings here. Well, the the the, the FAA under um, uh, SecDot, um, uh, shoot, um, I interviewed him a couple of years ago. Um, oh, I can't remember his name. Under the SecDot's direction, ended the program, uh, ended Bar, and and that was for a a period of time. Right. Congress, when they enacted um, the uh, reauthorization. Uh, earlier this year, back in I think it's February, um, mandated that FAA uh, block upon reasonable request. I think the phrase was uh, block aircraft registration information. On so, the so blocking the technically is in effect now. It's possible. Yes. Say again? Blocking is technically possible now. Yeah. All you have to do is request it from the FAA. Right. Okay. Now, what's this story about? Well, that's just the uh, the air traffic data, of course. Um, the uh, flights, you know, I've often thought about this also, the flights uh, um, all talk on the radio. And that's an open frequency, and it's not encrypted, and it's available for anyone to listen to right? at any time. So some enterprising guys with, with some good uh, talent in, in the software department wrote some software to key on to um, live ATC feeds at various airports or and or... Um, uh, just uh, live broadcast re- received uh, locally and, and transferred into the software um, and do a, a speech-to-text conversion and, uh, okay. apply, and apply some, uh, some juju to it all. And uh, they can figure out uh, which end number is arriving at which airport, irrespective of whether or not the, uh, uh, the data, the ASDI data stream is blocked. Yeah. That's sure, it's, of course. It's, it's very, it's very cool. Uh, it's a very cool analog to digital conversion if you look at it that way. Yeah, that's just yeah. It goes to you know, so that's now that falls short of being able to track an aircraft all the way across the country. But nevertheless, it gives you a, much more information than you would have all, otherwise. All you have to do is sit at Airport X and cop and listen to the clearance delivery frequency. Yeah, and, but you would have to do something like that, whereas. The data 
that bar allows you to request blockage on is basically taken from your IFR flight plan or your VFR flight following request. So it's going to have a, a, an, an estimated time of departure. It's going to have right. the departure airport. It's going to have the expected cruising altitude. It's going to have the routing and the destination airport. And if you listen close, you could get, you know, November 54321 X-ray cleared to the such-and-such such approach as filed. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's not quite the same depth of information. But it, if you're sitting there where you can receive that and you know where they are and they say cleared to that airport as filed, well, now you've got the start and the finish of it and not much in between. But it's not that hard to pull stuff together from 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 beyond that. Yeah. So, I heard a story at, at when we were at Oshkosh, and I forget who told me this. I can't even quite remember the circumstances, but I'm sure it's just one of these conversations you have throughout the week. Someone was talking about how he was using one of these new magical boxes that you can get now um, for for uh, uh, basically displaying traffic around you um, on one of your MFDs in the airplane. And uh, and and the system was displaying a particular target um, in his vicinity, and I guess for whatever reason he was curious. It didn't display, you know, good an end number or something like that, and so he asked ATC. He said, "What's what's that traffic? You know, at my whatever three o'clock, you know," and ATC goes. There's no traffic at your three o'clock, and and he goes and he paused for a I, I second. Heard this, yeah, you heard okay. this story too, right? Yeah, and yeah. so he said, so he paused a second, and the guy says, "No, no, no. It's there's traffic at my three o'clock. What's that traffic at my three o'clock? All right. I don't think it was any any you know collision danger here. It was like different altitudes or something like that. But he said he wanted to know what this traffic was. What's this traffic at my three o'clock? ATC goes, "No, there's no traffic at your three o'clock." And he asks a third time, <laughs> all right. And and after asking repeatedly, suddenly I don't know. Someone came on the frequency and said. Who's asking about this traffic? And it turns out that the traffic was Air Force One, is the way the story goes, anyways. Uh, and the ATC was sort of denying that it existed. And I don't know—is that the procedure? Does ATC like you know not call out Air Force One if you're flying around? I, I guess that makes some sense. I I, I don't know. But they, uh, I don't know what they would. I don't know what I don't know what they do in that instance. Is they that might the way? Say, you know. Yeah. Heavy Boeing seven forty seven at your you know three o'clock or right, something like right. that. I think I think the real answer is they generally give Air Force One a lot more airspace. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah you would imagine, yeah. <laughs> and and so there's really no need to call it as traffic to anybody. Yeah, well, plus yeah, that's there's that. Well, and the, yeah, they actually might say uh, you know uh, November one two three four X ray uh, turn left for uh, to maintain clearance, right, and not tell you what's out there. And if you're on an instrument flight plan, you're supposed to turn left uh, for clearance. Yeah, and they'll let it go with that. Plus, you got to figure. I, I w I've always assumed that Air Force One is not all by itself. Air Force One is a flight of two or three or four aircraft, because uh, there's got to be some some cover going around. You know, there, there's something nearby. You know, I suspect there is nowadays. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> or, or at least, um, um, you know, some some. Some aircraft that are ready near, nearby. Yeah. Back in the day, you know, I don't know if I've told this story before or not. Um, years ago, I used to fly out of Andrews Air Force Base back in the eighties, and uh, I was coming in from a trip. I was probably flying a Civil Air Patrol one seventy two. I was coming in from a trip, and I was vectored onto uh, a left downwind for one way uh, one nine right at Andrews. 
Uh, and that put me slightly east of the field and just over the field. And I'm about halfway up the downwind uh, coming in from the south when the tower controller says, um, did you need you to do a 360 out there on the downwind. I said, okay. So I did a 360. Uh, I need you to do another 360 on downwind out there for me. Okay, fine. And uh, rolled out of the downwind, and by that time, I started to get my wits about me and looked down, and Air Force One was taxiing for departure and, and you know, did not stop and, and took to the active and, and took off to the south. And I was cleared to land. That was like 82, 83. Right. That was Reagan, and that was Reagan, and that was uh, one of the old VC-137s, the, the 707s. Right. Um, yeah, the idea that there would be a private plane on downwind while Air Force One is taxiing na- around. Yeah, na- nowadays, can you conceive of such, no, such a thing? No, 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 that would be, you know, uh, that would, that would uh, yeah, maybe, I don't know, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Anyways, so the bar data is uh, is hackable, basically. Not the bar data, but, but the... The bar, the bar data may be hackable. That's not what these guys are But that's doing. not what we're talking they're, about here. They're just, right. this. They're, they're just snatching stuff out of out of the public airwaves. Yep. Yeah. And it's another case of reporting, overstating an issue um, beyond what really was. Because uh, my early reads on this was, wow, they're hacking into the computer to get the data that Barr is supposed to. No, 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 no. No such animal. So uh, I, I hit the snooze button and went back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> One of the things we announced while we were at uh, Oshkosh is uh, we announced the new uh, UCAP feature, uh, UCAP Echo, which is the archive Echo. of. Uh, this is just you know, you're not going to stop that for a while, are you? Go back. Ricky, Ricky, we, yeah, Ricky. exactly, exactly. So uh, yeah, UCAP Echo is a uh, an archive, a searchable, browsable, uh, all kinds of things uh, archive of. Uh, a old UCAP stuff, all of the, the goodies and the highlights from over the past six years, uh, along with some other stuff as well. Uh, and uh, we're going to experiment with a new feature here on the regular podcast, which is the uh, featured Echo Clip of the Week. Uh, and uh, one that we added just recently is, uh, is a clip from the uh, uh, an episode in February of 2007. Let's see what, ep- what episode. That was episode 15, which we called Come On In, The Water's Fine. And uh, in this episode, the three of us uh, kind of just uh, uh, shared our, our recollections, our reminiscences about our earliest flying experience when we kind of took our first lessons and when our first flights were. And, uh, and, and, I, and that was a cool conversation to listen to recently, um, which I hadn't heard it in a while. But uh, in, in digging through the show notes to identify interesting echo clips, I came across this one. And I was glad I did because it was kind of fun to go back and listen to us talk about, uh, about these earliest flying flying lessons and to remember my own as well so uh so you can check out the uh the echo clip our first flying lessons uh it's uh, uh at uh, uncontrolled airspace uh, uh slash un- uncontrolled airspace dot com slash echo well, we need a better way of of describing these things anyways we'll put it in the show notes um <laughs> or you can or you can yeah i'll bet you the url ucap echo is not taken uh, it is, as a matter of fact. I, it is. 
We took it. <laughs> we ah. signed. We have well, UCAP. There, there you go. Do a redirect and you're done. Well, we have UCAPECHO.com. We haven't quite uh, wired it up yet, but uh, we do have UCAPECHO.com. Um, no, it's the rest of it that's the hard part. Um, right now, yeah, the URL is like play.php, question mark, ID, et cetera, et cetera. So that, we don't want to do that. Um, and chances are, if you search for a uh, first flying lesson in Echo, uh, you'll find it. Uh, and uh, Or if you uh, go into the tags and, and, and navigate to the tags for UCAP015, uh, uh, you'll find it that way, and go into the show notes. We'll have a link directly to it there. But you can uh, you can go back and listen to uh, a segment from UCAP number one number fifteen from February of two thousand seven, where we talk about our when, earliest flying experiences. Back when we all just teenagers. Yeah, <laughs> that's I don't know about that part. We we were really serious sounding back in those early days. I, you know, it's just like it's it's almost disturbing to go back to listen to us in episode one and two. <laughs> I mean, it's well, like then, then don't. Yeah, we just thought we were. I don't know what we thought we were doing, but uh, we're much. I still don't know. We we're, we're much more casual about it now than we were back then. Uh, anyway, so go go so go check out that and all the other interesting clips that are available at uh, UCAP Echo, uh, uncontrolledairspace.com slash Echo, and uh, please uh, uh, let us know what you think. Send your suggestions and feedback to Echo at uncontrolledairspace.com. There's a story in the forums, uh, bird strike reporting, M. Buto, listener, M. Buto, Mike. Uh, what are they striking for? Better wages? Well, maybe. More, huh? more bird seed. Maybe, huh? So he's referring us to a story in the uh, Jetwine uh, blog that says... Uh, uh, oh, from Scotty Spangler. Yeah, oh, that's right. I didn't notice that. Yeah, that's uh, our, 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 our good buddy, our dear friend, Scott Spangler, who's a regular now for Jetwine, does a lot of blogging uh, for them. And he writes about... Uh, Bird strikes have been one of my passing interests ever since I watched the head-on confrontation between a seagull and a landing A6 during, during let's see now, NAS, NAS Alameda in the early 70s. He says the seagull lost, by the way. Um, somewhere over the years, the experts who study and do their best to prevent bird strikes started using that unusual word in the headline. Anyways, um, what's, yes, yeah, snarge, snarge? Snarge is a term given to the to the visceral remains of a bird strike. Yeah, okay, that's that's ugly. Uh, but what is it? They want your bird yeah. strike remains. Yeah. Why? They'll do DNA on it and figure out what kind of bird it was, right? And uh, whether or not they, you know, that's a normal habitat for that bird, or you know, what, how many of them there were, things like that. It, it's it's data mining, I guess. Plus, they have the TSA screen him. And and, mm-hmm. and check them against the terrorist watch list. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know what? I wouldn't put it past them. Anyway, say uh, uh, it's, it's unauthorized flying. Any way you cut it, that's right. That's so, right. It's in it's in the air it's in the airport airspace usually without a clearance. I mean, see, sending sending the who are you supposed to send this to the FAA or the TSA or the who who wants the, 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 when, the Smithsonian does it the Smithsonian so yeah. Smithsonian sending dead bird remains to the federal government isn't going to get you in trouble this is what i think all right it's just well, like, that's why they invented a word like snarge <laughs> <laughs> i guess I guess. <laughs> okay. I just didn't even know what to make of this. Job. All right. I think we're going to move on. When, yeah, I think it was 2002 or so, Meridian, Mississippi had a bird strike with a piper. Tower observed words, bird strike. 
asked me, did I just have a bird strike? I said, call me back when the wheels are on the ground because I was fighting a fairly nasty bit of turbulence on final. When that the, the, the turbulence which caught the bird and flipped it backward because he was about to win the race by making a left turn and getting off the runway center line. Uh, he took off. He got flipped backward. He came through the prop arc without touching anything and then found out just how durable the base of a quarter-inch thick windshield can be. Bounced off, went over the top, landed somewhere behind me. I wasn't watching. I forgot to put the rearview mirrors in the airplane that day. And uh, just before I touched down, did you just have a bird strike? I'll call you back. Okay, I'm on the ground. I called tower. Yes, I had a bird strike. Do you want to report a bird strike? Of course I'll report the bird strike. Okay, we'll send out somebody to pick it up. At no time did the word snarge come up in the conversation. I'm so glad that they found a way to describe that because a bird carcass is just not quite colorful enough. Yeah, no, well. But they, they've they been tracking this stuff for years. This is, yeah, this is the word may be new, but. Okay. All right. Anyways. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a couple of, couple of thoughts. One, it's nice of them to worry more about the carcass than the, than, you know, the inhabitants of the airplane and or the condition of your underwear. Um, the second thing, of course, is the old joke um, where somebody you know, at some big airport, an airliner starts rolling down the runway and hits a bird and uh, reports the bird strike. And um, the uh, tower tells the next flight, says, you know, such and such reported a, a bird strike on the runway and the the, the next air, airliner says yeah we've already notified catering <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well i foresee a new stan lee comic book character called sergeant snarge <laughs> <laughs> well we need to register that one real fast now yeah. <laughs> well is snarge.com taken let's start there I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Do it quick uh, <laughs> before you post this episode. All right. Well, we got, uh, a, few, we got a few days. You got. I can foresee many, many types of situations for him. Uh, so, oh, God. yeah, snarge. dot com is taken. Get out. It is. Well, Seriously. how about Sergeant Snarge? All right. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Let's go back here. Calm. S A R. G-E-N-T, Snarge. SergeantSnarge.com. That one's available. Hell of a rock band name. Yeah, I know. Right, Sergeant Snarge. There you go. All right, hang on. I just got to, like, write this down. Where is it? Here we go. And, 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 you know, this is absolutely snargealistic. Uh, there's right. a lot of potential in this one. You're pushing things now, David. I'm sorry. Uh, one of the airplanes I didn't get a chance to look at while I was at uh, AirVenture uh, is uh, I didn't get to check in on the uh, Icon A5, uh, which continues to be a very exciting airplane, or which is to say a lot of people are excited about it. A uh, story we came across in the news, let's see, dated July 12, before Oshkosh, um, talks about how uh, the Icon A5 is going to use one of these new uh, Rotax 912s, the one with the uh, electronic ignition and, and all that good stuff. And, well, the uh, IS, the fuel-injected one. fuel in- is it? It's fuel injected. Is this all the, also the one that has the electronic ignition? Well, it's long had electronic ignition. Oh, the fuel injection is the really new part. Is the new part? Okay, so uh, that's very cool. Um, and, and now, by the way, 
and I was just looking at their website, and it doesn't confirm this, but I'm 95% certain that Brad from Pripistrol, when I view when I uh, uh, toured the uh, their booth and sat in the Virus, um, the Virus has one of these ISs as well, um, and uh, although the website isn't indicating that right now, um, it's just saying it has a Rotex 912 UL. Um, but I'm right. Well, that's the currently certified one in that in that installation. Yeah. So uh, so this air, air this engine is starting to to pop up in lots of different places, and uh, it's just looking to be a really cool engine if you've got an airplane that's of that size category. Um, you know, I mean, do you guys agree? Oh, absolutely. You know, he he was telling me like you know cruise speeds know and fuel flows that were just insane on this Virus. I mean, like. Cruising at because this is not an LSA, the Virus is not an LSA. Uh, so you got cruise speeds of in the 140, 150 knot range, yet fuel burns of like three and four gallons an hour or less. I mean, less actually, nuts, yeah. just nutty, nutty kind of kind of numbers. And uh, you know, and part of that is because the Virus is just such a slippery, sleek airplane, but uh, it, that engine also contributes to it. So. Um, but uh, did you guys, either of you, get a chance to get up close and personal with the Icon A5 while we were there? I, I did not. Yeah. I did not wish I had. Yeah. You mean there was airplanes outside my office? I know. We, we, we spent an awful lot of time working indoors this year. It was, it was unfortunate. But we put out a good newspaper in the process, so there was uh, a consolation. A, it, it, I, and I, it, I like your question here. I like your question here. Uh-oh. What did I, what's my question? On you know, is the Rotax actually cheaper and easier to fly? If so why isn't if why isn't everyone using it? Yeah, do you have any insights into that? Well, I've got a few hundred hours flying behind Rotaxes and 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 a, a large number of flying on nine twelves that were carbureted and had I, I shouldn't say electronic ignition; they had flywheel ignition. That was it was solid state. Uh, it was built into the engine. It wasn't a magneto-type setup of the conventional type. Uh, this new engine, everything is digitized. They've mapped the power, the fuel injections, the electronic, it's true electronic ignition, not just the flywheel kind. Uh, is it cheaper? Uh, over the long haul, uh, a little bit, because it's got a 2,000-hour TBO. Uh, so you can get the same kind of hours out of it as many comparable horsepower engines. Uh, it burns significantly less fuel uh, than those engines. And the carbureted version, interestingly enough, also burns less fuel than most of those comparable engines. Uh, ones with carburetors and, and uh, conventional magnetos. Uh, we're talking in the neighborhood of sometimes as much as two gallons an hour better fuel efficiency mm -hmm. on the carbureted one, uh, which is it, it, long term. If you own the airplane, you're flying it 100 hours a year. That adds up to you know a couple of big nights out at the sushi bar. Yeah. Uh, the overhaul costs aren't quite as inexpensive. And Rotax has a reputation of being very, very proud of their power plants. But over the long haul, a lot of that stuff evens out. So that if you look at direct operating costs, upfront investment costs, and overhaul costs, uh, that over the period of 2,000 hours, 
the Rotax, particularly this new IS, will be uh, notably less expensive to own and operate than, say, Continental's uh, really lightweight O200, like on the Skycatcher, but not necessarily better than Lycoming's new, uh, uh, what is it, 233 engine for light sport, which is also fuel injected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that beyond the fuel injection, the, the Rotax 912 is partially liquid cooled which lets them run at lower fuel specifics and keep the engine cool. It doesn't depend on air solely for cooling and and gets just better. The fuel specifics being uh, horsepower per pound of fuel per hour of use. So when you look at specific fuel consumption, uh, the Rotaxes are actually very, very, very uh, uh, efficient engines. Yeah. And the reason why more don't use them, partly paranoia, partly they're not familiar with them, partly because some manufacturers don't want to pony uh, up the higher initial purchase price. And once the owner's stuck with it, he's stuck with it. Yeah. I remember, and this is a kind of fuzzy memory, so you may need to correct me on it, but um, this goes back 15, 20 years now. Um, My flying club in Palo Alto way back when – we were all very excited that we got three or four of the then brand new Diamond Katana aircraft. Oh that, yeah, with the eighty horse and a constant speed prop. Yeah, and uh, and as I recall, those were Rotox engines initially. That's right. And 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 we thought that that was going to lead to all kinds of great economies um, and, and allow them to be rented for lower prices. Um, we were a little disappointed as time went on that uh, that it didn't, and and the club actually eventually got rid of them. And and Diamond, as I recall, changed out the engine and replaced the Rotax engines with, I don't know whether it was Lycoming's or Continental's, but, but uh, changed them for some reason. Um, so, and I don't know, you know. Someone t- some, I, I heard someone telling a story about how uh, part of this is, plays into the fact that the, uh, that the uh, maintenance operations at some of these flight schools are just so familiar with maintaining the Lycoming, Lycoming's and Continental's and didn't want to deal with having to learn how to maintain the Rotaxes. And, uh, and as a result, the flight school operations are, are disinclined to buy uh, uh, you know, Rotax aircraft. Um, what they what they replaced them with was a follow-on engine from Continental to the O two hundred called the IO two forty, and the IO two forty had some of the benefits of being uh, electronically controlled. It was a new engine. Uh, it had some advantages over the uh, the the even the early nine twelve the eighty horse. One of them being a higher TBO. Another one being more horsepower. Uh, and no reduction drive. And back at the beginning, when the DA-20 was new, the 912 was still fairly new and not nearly as mature as it's come to be. Uh, But you're right about that. There's a certain airplane company whose name escapes me that surveyed a lot of people about what engine they should put in a new LSA they were making. And there was a fairly distinct breakdown between the end-user type respondents and the institutional customer type respondents. Mm -hmm. The end-user type respondents were overwhelmingly uh, in favor of the Rotax. The institutional 
respondents were overwhelmingly in favor of uh, a, a lightened Continental O200, uh, which is nowhere near as sophisticated as the IO240. Uh, the engine is heavier than the Rotax, the, the O200, the lightweight O200, and it will, for its entire life, burn more fuel per hour at all power settings than the uh, Rotax. Uh, and the shops knew how to work on it. Conventional mags, slicks in most cases. Uh, carburation, uh, well, we all know how to work on carburetors, needle jets and float bowl adjustments. Uh, nothing unconventional about it. So the company, whose name I can't remember, opted to go with the other engine, uh, the Continental. Uh, not a thing wrong with it. The airplane flies great on it. But it permanently condemns the end user to higher fuel bills and permanently takes away between 35 and 40 pounds of useful load. And from what I've heard from the grapevine, that's had a, a little effect long term on the end user sales of the airplanes from the institutional customers to end customers. Right. Because most of the airplanes in that category are not using Continentals, yeah. and they're not using the new likes. They're using 100-horse, uh, in some cases 80-horse, but mostly 100-horse uh, Rotaxes. And this new IS, which is going to be a little more expensive, takes the fuel burn down so much, has so much uh, to gain in lower maintenance costs because of the electronics. There's no magnetos, for example, not even flywheel gun. Uh Fuel injection requires next to no maintenance. There's no timing to do. Uh, and they've got the TBO up to 2,000 hours. That changes the long-term equation. Yeah. So, anyways, Jeb, anything you want to add about Rotax engines? Not a thing. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> um, I've never landed at the wrong airport. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay. <laughs> But uh, but this C-17 crew can't claim the same. This is just I gotta be an oops. This is a story from uh, when did this happen? So many of these stories happened before Oshkosh. It happened while we were Oshkosh. I think it was it while we were at Oshkosh. Uh, what's no, the Dateline. Yeah, just before Dateline on this is uh, July 20. So yeah. So a a, a C-17. This is down in your area, your neighborhood, Jeb. Um, yeah. Airplane thought it was landing at uh, MacDill Air Force Base. Instead, landed at Peter O'Knight Airport. Now, just, let's see now quickly. What's the difference in runway lengths at these two things? All right. Uh, <laughs> I got to think it's like a factor of two, probably right, even three, maybe. Um, Quick, what's Peter O'Knight runway two two? Here, let's runway see. Are, the runway, I mean, the article says the, the longest runway at Peter O'Knight is thirty five eighty. Really, the longest <laughs> runway uh, at McDill is is eleven four. Yeah, okay. so it's <laughs> it's it's an order of it's almost four orders of magnitude. Four, well, that's a, yeah, four four four, four, four yeah. times, yeah, four yeah. x, yeah. Um, that's uh, that's pretty intense. That's. Uh, so uh and and I was just watching this video uh so not only did they get the takeoff videoed because that's obvious they knew that was going to happen but somebody caught the landing on on video and uh you know so these guys just just lined up for the wrong runway and landed and I don't know what you know at some point you got to realize the, here's the key it, 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 um, yeah 
this is an out of town crew. Yeah. They were they were arriving. They were arriving from Southwest Asia carrying 23 passengers and 19 crew. They were they tired. They were airborne all all night. Yeah. So they they landed on the wrong runway, on the wrong airport at the wrong runway, and uh, but uh, they got the right state. <laughs> yeah. So don't really don't you know. Go easy and long, on the poor skinny guy. state with water on three I know. sides. Yeah, and there's so many airports in Florida. I mean, how can you tell them apart? I don't know. I'll uh, go land at the one near the lake. Yeah. Oh wait. So, I'll go land at the one near the water. Wait. Don't. No, that doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, so, from the looks of it, it was never any kind of an issue. You know, this is a C-17. We saw this at Oshkosh. You know, these airplanes can fly. You know, and. Uh, and they're sort of designed for short field operations. I'm not sure 3,500 feet, but uh, uh, you know they're intended for short, you know, sometimes unimproved runways. And uh, so, uh, but I just wonder, you know, you just got to wonder what was going through these pilots' mind. At what point did they realize they were making a mistake? You know, clearly, I don't know. You would think that they would have gone around if they were even, you know, on on mid final. And uh, um, but they went and touched down. Were the runway numbers the same? I don't know. I just kind of should should have looked into this a little bit more here. But uh, um, main runway, uh, here's that numbers Jeb was telling us. So, anyways, and then there's video of it taking off. But, you know, this is just like, well, and, and everybody knew it was going to happen. So there was like a crowd to watch this thing take off. And, uh, um, and not unlike the short field takeoffs we saw it do at Oshkosh. So on one level, it's just kind of, you know, a non-story. But obviously, it's a big story. Do you think the guys who landed it got to do the takeoff? <laughs> That's a good question. You, you think the guys who landed it will ever get to fly another um, military aircraft? Oh, sure. How serious is this stuff taken? I mean, I'm not, I was, I've never been in the military. What do I know? But uh, um, Bots. It, it, it's taken pretty seriously. I would, but serious enough that you're grounded forever, or or no, 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 no. So you're just retrained and and busted a little bit, and and uh, and never live it down, and it becomes part of your nickname, you know, you know, like the two pilots are now they're now their code names are Peter O and Knight, you know, and uh, <laughs> now these two pilots are out of a job, guys. You think so? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. You don't think they'll give them remedial and. Yeah, they might give them remedial, but you know they'll be hauling rubber rubber dog shit out of Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, well, I found a great aerial view of McDill. Yeah, and I'd like to find one of Peter O'Knight just to give people a little perspective here, because they both share one overriding trait: they're next to the water. Right. Right. Yes. And apparently they have they have a, air, uh, runways that are aligned the same, but um, I don't know. It's, there's something bad wrong there. But again, I think you know just the duration of the flight. They're coming in. They're tired. Uh, all they want to do is put this thing on the ground. Um, <laughs> I, I, I get that. Yep. Yep. Okay. While I was researching, um, this is just mostly a, a kind of a pointer for folks who are at all curious. There's not really much to talk about here. But uh, when I was researching some articles that I was writing for the newspaper at Oshkosh, I came across two really interesting uh, uh, informational documents online. Uh, both of them were from uh, sagetech.core.com, uh, corp.com. It's a maker of uh, electronic devices. I believe I was writing that day about ADS, ADSB devices. Um, and... Uh, 
They have two interesting documents. One is an ADSB FAC, uh, Frequently Asked Questions document, where they uh, just talk about a lot of details, things that, you know, kind of if you're looking for a one-stop shop to go and learn about the issues around ADSB, uh, check this one out. And uh, and similarly, um, they had a white paper. Turns out this is actually not theirs. This is a reproduction from an FAA website, but uh, one on um, on what they called UASs, or, um, unmanned aerial systems, aviation systems, or UAVs, what we call it, um, and talks about you know the 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 pros and cons and why they're becoming popular and what some of the issues are. And uh, both of them I thought were pretty interesting documents if you're looking for an overview on ADSB stuff or UAV stuff. Um, I would call your attention to these things that are at the sagetech.corp.com website, and we'll put complete links in the uh, show notes, or Jeff will anyways. Um, Jeff, uh, David, I see you're sending us a link here. Is this an uh, overview of the uh, Peter O'Knight Airport now? Well, it sh- yeah, it shows it on map, and uh, the other one I showed, I sent you, shows to McDill, uh, an aerial view of McDill. Yeah, I saw the yeah. one in McDill. Yeah. I'm I'm looking at that. I just zoomed in on Tampa. So they're only, you know, two or three miles apart across the bay. And, yeah. And there's water in the environment and you know yeah, the it's, main runways align the same, but it's you know a fucking lot longer, dude. Yeah, I know, you know. It, it, you know, and, and to be fair, they're both right there next to the water, although uh one of them has more more, more concrete. Yeah. But yep. Surprising, it's it's too bad that there there isn't a device that you can have in the panel of your aircraft that will guide you directly ah! to <laughs> a particular airport uh. that you want to go to. Um, ironically, they, they well, I don't know. I guess a, a GPS was created for the military, so one would expect that there's some sort of GPS navigation stuff in this C-17. Gra- grasshopper, learn well, learn yeah, lesson I, well. I, ah, yeah, so. right, yeah, right. I know. So, anyways, and, and, and a moving map display for the F. MS and uh, the I don't thing know, maybe not, somebody had, entered a, you know, the wrong code. The story says the thing had 19 crew members on it. That's 28 eyes or um, um, uh, 38 eyes. They can't figure out which runway they're landing yeah, on. Yeah, but there's only like three windows in the entire airplane. That's part of the problem. The rest of the crew. Maybe was, that. Well, there you go. We solved it. Right. Maybe next we'll tackle the F-22 oxygen problem. Yeah, there you go. We've solved it now. Okay. So ADSB, the facts from Sage Tech. Yeah. FAQs. Yeah. Why are they so deep? I, I give up. Why? Because not everybody that comes to this page knows what the frack they are. Oh, okay. Um, see, after well, that, I shouldn't yeah, ask. There's that, too. But in, in the FAA, is inevitable, um, uh, an inevitable outcome from the FAA's uh, activities in this area. It's a cocked-up mess. Mm. And, you know, it takes a fact to figure out what the, uh, what the frack is going on with all this. Yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have lobbyists checking in on this. They're going to have congressional staff checking in on this. Uh, most of whom won't know what this is until they check in on a play, page like this, and at least among the lobbyists, get a check to argue for or against it. Right, right. Okay, moving on. 
finally, J- uh, David, are you from? I don't know why I'm asking David, but it just seems like it's a little more up your alley. Me um, either. The Kit Industry Association, or uh, for some reason, the initial Akia. is Ikea. Ikea, A K I A. Um, although it calls itself the Kit, so it should be T K I A. Tikia, Akia. Anyways, um, the Kit Industry Association, formally organized uh, during Air Venture, uh, in response to the. Oh, this is. Oh, okay. What is this all about? Well, we had this in uh, Air Venture today last week. Yeah, not coincidentally. You, you, you didn't read the paper? Yeah, yeah. I read my column. The, and I read it. And I read an no, article about an interview. Go ahead. With Inhofe, go ahead. Go ahead. And I read an article about an article about an interview with Inhofe. But that's basically what I read. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry. <laughs> hang, on, hang on. I almost got stout out my nose. Uh, <laughs> there is, uh, let's say. Some disassociation in in, in progress between uh, uh, an industry that was largely at home in the Experimental Aircraft Association and the direction that they feel like EAA is headed. And they felt like they needed their own association to argue and, and, and debate and support their own industry and their own perspectives separate from... Lama, which has evolved uh, over the years to be the light sport organization, and Gamma, which has uh, always been for the uh, factory manufacturers, their trade group. Uh, and there was some feeling, I'm, I'm told by some of the Hakia founders, that they no longer really feel like EAA is representative and representing uh, the business that they're in and what they're trying to do. So this is to give them a unified voice uh, in those spots in uh, Congress before the FAA uh, in in presence of other trade groups that they feel they need uh, for the experimental amateur-built community, which these days is no longer, you know, uh, a scratch building community it is predominantly a uh you get all the pieces ready to rivet together yeah i so i'm reading down the um van is the president of akia uh dick van Van, van was one of the prime movers uh an old friend of mine john manette from sonex is one of the prime movers uh and uh i'm i'm uh well acquainted with the guy that's doing the organizing and behind the scenes work to make it the uh, an association mm-hmm. and uh, doing the spokesperson work for it right uh, I mean having... they have they have some really clear goals they have some really good ideas uh, uh, but they feel like that they've got to take this on on their own now yeah I mean having van involved that gives it some weight i I, I guess I didn't catch that part earlier on so uh... Having Vans involved gives it weight. Having John Manette involved gives it weight. Having Randy Schlitter at Rands involved gives it weight because these are some of the heaviest hitters in the business. Yeah. Interesting to see where this goes. Um, it shall be. Before um, before we went out to Oshkosh, I heard a buzz that maybe the, uh, what did they call it, the Sport Aviation Association, the SAA, which was a real grassroots uh, flying organization, might be making another attempt at, at getting rolling. Do you know what I'm talking about, David? Absolutely. My, my membership number in SAA is, four, is I believe it's 499. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, did, did you hear anything more about that while we were actually on the ground at Oshkosh? I did not. 
Yeah, I did actually a little bit, uh, uh, and not a whole lot more than what was out there. But I I, I understand that the uh, effort that's underway is uh, geared toward resurrecting the uh, the uh, six time a year magazine, to resurrecting the SAA's annual fly in, uh, and to uh, moving it into the next step territory, which is uh, kind of reigniting some of the grassroots stuff that someone felt was being lost when they launched the Sport Aviation Association to begin with back in about 98. Yeah. Was it that long ago? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah it was. I remember- and a, a nice young lady named Audrey Pobrezny mm, yes. slipped, slipped me my application. And I paid my dues, and I continue to pay dues. Uh, and I get my sticker. And uh, uh, this was something that uh, Paul Poberesny had copyrighted and trademarked years earlier uh, when he was thinking that EAA might start going in directions while he was still there running it that would warrant starting a second organization. But then he did not activate it. Until I believe uh, in, in in parallel with the renaming of the EAA convention fly-in to Air Venture. Yeah, that might have been about the time that I first. Well, I guess that would be around about ninety-eight, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. Two thousand, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you when you look at it, it's not a lot different than what a lot of the EAA chapters actually do. But it's not focused on the home building movement specifically. It's not focused on uh, on experimental amateur built. It's focused on people that fly for fun. Period. Right. And there's some feeling that uh, that's not really represented as well at EAA as it used to be. And I uh, I'm 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 not sure that I'm willing to make that statement. All I know is that Paul felt it was time to activate it. He activated it. He got rolling. That uh, working with uh, uh, Rudy Frasca up in Illinois, they had quite a nice series of uh, of uh, annual fly-ins, uh, more in tune with what EAA's very earliest events were at Mitchell Field in Milwaukee and the early ones in Rockford, Illinois. Yeah. They were three days. They were four days. They weren't these gargantuan events that uh, uh, EAA's uh, annual event has grown into. They had no ambitions to do that. It was just folks getting together, campsites, uh, doing a little free flying, flying out to some breakfast, uh, having some chats and some little forums on their own. And when it was all wrapped up, going back home the way they came. Yeah. That could be cool. That could be cool, even if it's only a side-by-side thing with EAA. Uh, I think that there's some parallel. I think there's room for some parallel work here. Yeah. Uh, And as to close out IKEA, the thing that struck me is when I first heard about this about five weeks ago, they were just in the organizing phases of it. The fact that they've gotten through the organizing phases and the initial players on it have increased their membership to fourteen. And then by the time they finished their first big meeting at Oshkosh, to 20. Mm-hmm. And I would bet that that 20 represents the vast majority of the capacity in the kit manufacturing community. Yeah. 
shout outs what do we got here uh i got one real quick one uh mostly it's a correction um a minor correction um one of the airplanes we saw a taxi in front of us uh during episode 300 from the deck of ea radio was a really cool sleek red uh, race plane that i like a lot and i refer to it as the poland special and apparently it's it's pronounced paul I'm not sure what I said, but that was the other one. You said it, Poland is pronounced Poland. It's Poland is correct. I'm told by by our buddy Afterburner Al, who sent me a text message um, at the time, but I didn't notice until a little bit later on. So thanks to Afterburner Al for uh, checking in and 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 correcting me there. It's a very cool airplane, regardless of how you pronounce its name. And uh, maybe I'll find a picture. We'll put a note, put a, a a link in the show notes to the the Poland special, which is a cool airplane. You guys got any shoutouts? I do have one, but I'll let uh, Jeb got one. No, I, I've got one. I don't remember what it is, though. Go ahead. <laughs> well, that's a problem. David, you go first. Uh, okay. This is kind of a, a recruiting shout-out. Uh, over the past few years, it's been my honor to fly with a, a, a friend of mine when he was doing angel flights uh, from here in the Midwest and sometimes all the way out to the uh, East Coast. Angel Flight being the organization that helps give airlift to medical patients in need of special treatment in places that the treatment is not available where they live. Uh, Angel Flight makes no charge for their services. The pilots are all volunteer, and they supply their aircraft and buy the fuel and do the good deed. It is one of the ultimate mitzvahs in life. well, it seems like demand for lift uh, on the Angel Flight West organization, and they have regional divisions of this, has far exceeded availability in the last few months. And they uncharacteristically put out a call recently for extra pilots to volunteer for this to help them alleviate some of this need uh, because it is, an, it is a matter of need. These are generally ill people, not with contagious kind of things, but with maybe malignancies, blood diseases, stuff where the best specialists aren't necessarily in every town in the country. And they are living sometimes thousands of miles from where they need to go for treatment. And then some of them become regulars on angel flight lift. Uh, which even works to the point where the, the pilots will, on occasion, run relays so that one pilot's not, uh, not uh, expected to take somebody multiple, just, you know, multiple cop-offs in their airplane, but will drop them off like the Pony Express. They'll get them to one point where another angel flight picks them up and gets them to the next point where another one picks them up and gets them to the treatment, and then the process reverses. So if you're a pilot anywhere in the United States... And you feel like doing something really useful for mankind, uh, I'd really encourage you to do uh, uh, to look into angel flight. But specifically, if you're in the western U.S., and this appeals to the humanitarian in you, uh, they're more in need than usual right now. And it would be a good thing if you'd uh, uh, step up and maybe help somebody get some life-saving treatment. Very cool. Very cool. Jeb. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what it was. You can't remember what it was. Okay. (laughs) Can I throw in one more quickie? You can. A shout out to my lovely bride, Annie. Oh, yes. I was going to do this too. No, let me. On her birthday. Let me. Yes, absolutely. Okay, you do it. Yeah. You do it. Uh, 
Yeah, one shout out I want to do here uh, is to, uh, uh, let's see, now I had a note here, but uh, uh, we want to wish uh, a very, very happy birthday to uh, Dave's lovely bride, Annie, um, who uh, apparently today is her birthday. Is that right, David? That's correct. Yeah, that's very, very cool. Happy birthday. 39 again. Yeah, happy birthday to Annie. Uh, uh, a cool person all around, not not the least of which is because she puts up with you. Um, and uh, Obviously. Yeah, but uh, I've only met her once or twice, but it's always been a pleasure, and, uh, and we wish her a very happy birthday. Let's see now. One one last bit of uh, of uh, podcast uh, uh, administration administrivia here. Um, so um, I'm happy to announce this is going to be a little bit of a surprise to you guys because I'm kind of goofing around a little bit here. But here's the story. Um, I'm happy to announce that after some 300 episodes, uh, uh, Uncontrolled Airspace has been renewed for a second season, and uh, we will be wrapping up season one uh, after in a couple more weeks. Around uh, about episode uh, 304, I think it'll be uh, on the uh, of our sixth birthday as a podcast uh, will be our uh, will be our uh, season finale uh, where we'll have some sort of hokey uh, uh, cliffhanger um, and then we will return a little bit after that with uh, the uh, premiere of season two of uncontrolled airspace uh, stay tuned for that Hey, now they picked us up for another one, huh? They picked us up for another one. It took them a little while, but we finally wore them down, and uh, we're good. Do, do, do we get a raise? We're good to go. Yeah, right, double. Um, so, <laughs> that's Dave Higdon. Dave's an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Uh, David, what have you been working on other than Oshkosh? Anything uh, you, <laughs> you probably well, if have? You were- if you were at Oshkosh and, and, and you had the opportunity and the wherewithal, you might have picked up a, a, a copy of the Aircraft Electronics Association's Pilot's Guide to Avionics for 2012-2013. Yep, I got if mine. If not, get a hold of them and get yourself a copy. It's a freebie, and it's got a little bit of my work in it and, and, and a little bit of work of some guy named Burnside. Yeah. They sort of have a magazine as well, right? Sort of a magazine-like publication. That I picked up uh, there at that it's table more as like well. like a reference book. I, I know the reference book is the yellow book, but there was yeah. also a sort of a magazine. They also, yeah, they also have a magazine. Yeah, it's called what, like AEA News or something like that, Electronics a- News. A- or, Avionics News. Avionics News, yeah. That's the magazine. Yeah. Yes. This is so totally different. Yeah, okay. Well, I got them both at the same booth. Oh, okay. And good deal. They're both good, and I picked them up both and uh, skimmed them at the time and looking forward to spending more time with them, yes. Uh, so, David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, AEA.net, uh, that's the Aircraft Electronics Association side. com with my friends World Aircraft Sales. Uh, or, uh, let's see, uh, blah-dum, Got something that will be coming up in the September issue of uh, Light Sport and Ultralight Flying, which nice. back when I worked there was called Glider Rider. Back to your roots. Back to my roots, and uh, I'll let you dig that out and uh, learn about it on your own. Yeah. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, you been working on anything recently? Uh, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> are you insane? It's just been too long since we've done this. All right, yes. Uh, uh, other than their venture today, anything coming out soon? Um, well, it's... Probably, but you have no recollection yeah, of it. I'm up for the September issue of... Yeah, I'm gearing up for the September issue of Aviation Safety. Um, Mr. Higdon might even have an article in that if he, you know, Foo can send it to me. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, finished an article today for AEA, for Avionics News. Uh, um, shipped that out. Got another one coming up for them. 
Yeah. And where could people find you and all this stuff on the internet? Oh, AEA.net, AviationSafetyMagazine.com, um, oh, maybe even JEBurnside.com, or uh, um, yeah, just Google the name. It's been a long time since I forgot to introduce myself at the beginning of the episode, but I'm pretty sure I forgot this time. But uh, Oh, yeah. One way or the other, I'll tell you right now that I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, you can uh, check out my Kindle ebooks and uh, uh, on uh, on Amazon. Just go to uh, Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. I've also been putting a lot of effort in these days into uh, UCAP Echo, the new uh, searchable, browsable archive uh, on, uh, on uncontrolled airspace. So Go to uncontrolledairspace.com slash echo. And in general, you can find out information about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes and for his help with the forums. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earle, Jim Goldman, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out Echo, check out the wiki, check out the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? Live long, go fly, and remember, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMFFN. Oh, that was a little tentative. Okay. <laughs> you want to say that again, Jeb, please? Yeah. A-M-F-F-N. There you go. That's much better. Thank you. <laughs>